Welcome to the Pilot Boys Podcast, where you'll get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. And here are your hosts, Vishwant and Partha. And we're back with another episode of the Pilot Boys Podcast, episode 72. Back from vacation and recharge part that seemed like you had a good weekend of relaxation as well that helped you recharge as well. I had to do the at-home vacay. I didn't have the uh, the luxury of, oh, well, I guess I did go to the beach, so there is that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you live by a beach, man. I have to spend money and fly to one, so. That's by uh, choice. I'm going to just always let you know that. Well, the money I'm saving in taxes, I think, covers a few vacations. Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> well, let's get to it, man. I'm looking forward to today's episode. A lot going on, a lot of cool stuff that I'm actually looking forward to talking to you about as my kind of uh, younger uh, tech-savvy brother over here. So <laughs> let's let's get into it. So first thing is uh, Top Shot which has been everywhere, NBA Top Shot. It's part of the NFT trend that we talked about briefly last week, non-fungible tokens. I think me and V are a lot more educated on this this week than we were last week, given all the news and all of our friends getting into the game. Essentially, it's uh, to recap, it's a digital collectible that has uh, some store of value. It's stored on the blockchain, so it, it can't be faked. Um, so authenticity is guaranteed of whatever you purchase. And the values on these things are skyrocketing so much so that NBA Top Shot stopped allowing people to come in to buy these like highlights or different clips of players. Um, now, V has joined the game and has stepped a little bit onto the court. So you want to share a little bit about that experience of like what what how did you even like decide to get into it, bro? Well, I just looked at it as, as the hype around NFTs grew. I feel like it's important, even if you're not going to get involved in something, something that is trending for you to be educated on it. And, you know, we've talked about it many times. The best way to educate yourself on something is putting some skin in the game, nothing significant, but some skin in the game. It's fascinating. I, the concept of NFTs itself is, is fascinating to me because it's kind of given me an aha moment in terms of understanding an actual use for cryptocurrency, a real tangible use um, for blockchain technology. And that's what excites me about it um, and the concept of NFTs. And then also the NBA kind of being a trailblazer and accepting and embracing new technology. This is pretty trailblazing for them as an organization at their scale um, to embrace a new technology that hasn't necessarily been proven yet. Yeah. Um, I know they've been around since 2014, 2015, um, but now is when they're happening and it just is a reminder why the NBA is at the forefront of sports organizations in terms of advancement. Uh, so for all of those reasons, and, and obviously the basic reason is I'm a huge NBA fan. There is some entertainment value that may come from this for me in understanding, okay, I don't have the time to always watch full basketball games anymore. I have become more highlight driven and, and media and article driven in my the way that I follow sports. So this might be a way for me to keep that entertainment value that I have with the NBA in kind of a cool way. Those are kind of all of the the reasons that I got involved. I just signed up. It was I had to wait three days because the sign up uh, craze. They've really created a uh, a scarcity of um, scarcity impact with how they've done it. Had to wait three days before I was even even able to log in. Wow! I, I attempted to purchase a pack um, right after they dropped at one p.m. Um, and they were gone uh, before <laughs> I was able to get one. And immediately after, I saw the prices for all of them skyrocket um, on the on the marketplace. Um, wow! So it's it's really fascinating seeing the exponential value growth. Of these things, and I think part of the, you know, like cryptocurrency or any new technology, when it first, sometimes the, the best opportunity in terms of a transactional value for these is at the outset before anyone else understands them. As more and more people get involved, 
as the market becomes larger, I'm assuming that the prices will shift downwards. Um, oh, yeah. We'll see a more reasonable market, but wanted to see you gather your thoughts on NFTs generally, and then, you know, how they relate to the blockchain technology. And if you see this as having a positive overall impact on the crypto world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love them, man. I love any time people create new tech and it becomes a thing. Um, we are actually looking at NFTs at Lasso to see if we can get involved in the game and do some some cool kind of forward thinking stuff. And I think that's like whenever a trend like this happens, to your point earlier, I think it's important to nod to culture and to do your best to participate in some way because yeah. it's just it's cool. It's cool to see what people are on and what the next thing is. Um, I'm not crazy bullish about this market because I'm not crazy bullish about collectibles, but I do feel if you're into Gary V or any of that stuff, the, the whole, you know, baseball card, basketball card game, then this is probably huge for you because it's a much easier way to buy, sell, trade, etc. Um, plus you don't have to hold any sort of physical assets, so there's nothing to take care of. And I think this represents kind of a value shift that's been going on generationally. If you talk to people in my generation or lower about buying a house, they can say, well, why would I buy a house? I'm stuck with a house. Whereas people want to be able to have a tremendous amount of liquidity in their hands at any given time. So I think we'll see a shift in terms of people shifting more and more of their net worth into more liquid options like NFTs or just stores of value, essentially, that can be easily sold. But the trade-off is volatility there in terms of overall value. Yeah, I think um, the hype beast, we always talk about how the hype beast oftentimes takes over. And I think that's the case here. If you really understand collectibles and how difficult that market actually is to generate value and for it to be profitable, it's a very small percentage of people who are able to do that uh, successfully. And that's why the the largest art traders in the world um, are billionaires, right? Yeah. Um, and anytime that there's a few a handful of people who are really successful or a small percentage of people who are extremely successful, that means there are a lot of people who are unsuccessful. Um, and so that's, that's my fear with this. When the hype beast of, of things take over, this isn't different than art. People are like, oh, it isn't any different than art. It's not any different than trading cards. You're right. It's not any different. And that means that it comes with the exact same risk attributes that those things come with. And I completely understand why you are not a big collectible person, right? Because you believe in actually creating real things and creating real value. And also in what you, what you purchase and you buy, you look at value differently um, than some people who are into collectibles, who are into high fashion, who are into some of these other things who for them personally, there's value attributed to those things. But I think from a practical standpoint, to look at these NFTs and say, oh, these things are going to revolutionize the world economy, that is not a good way to look at it. These are This is a new technology that is attacking an industry, a very specific industry, in a novel and cool way and is also showcasing one practical use for blockchain technology and cryptocurrency, specifically Ethereum. Now, there are also downside risks that a lot of people are not thinking about, too, which I wanted to talk to you about, which is people are looking at cryptocurrency, um, and specifically most of these things, NFTs are traded with Ethereum, um, which, isn't, which, isn't block, which isn't Bitcoin, which is the one we hear about a lot. Um, but they leave a huge carbon footprint and having a very negative impact on um on the environment at the current standpoint at the current time so i'm those are all the things that i'm thinking about with these things like be curious understand things don't just start jumping into hype beasts because i think a lot of people are at home right now um, and have a lot of time and are looking at at new things and i feel like a lot of people are going to lose their shirts um jumping into this space too bullishly yeah yeah i think that's a, a great point a great warning to those out there you know don't don't ever jump into a new thing too fast you should uh you should wade your way in or if you do i mean you have the opportunity to, to do tremendously well but most people end up losing all of their money yes 
Exactly. Yeah. Um, so on to the next thing, talking about SPACs. Um, for those who don't know about SPACs, it's a trend that's been around recently, but it originally started in the 90s. Um, essentially, a SPAC is a different way to take a company public. Uh, typically, when you go public, you have to use an investment bank or somebody else to, to take you through the transaction and uh, help you with listing. Um, they'll typically take about 10% of the company to do this. And so uh, let's use Facebook as an example. I forget who they went with. Let's just assume it was Goldman. Um, 10% of Facebook goes to Goldman or whatever percent they negotiate usually is, is in that range. And uh, Goldman will give that to their shareholders whose money they manage. And then they'll sell those shares after you know some time in the market when the stock ideally goes up. Um, they get a discount rate that they get the stock for because they're listing the company. And so everybody whose money is managed by Goldman makes a killing. A SPAC is a little bit different because it allows a company to go public through essentially uh, what's called a blank check company. So people will take companies, put a few hundred million to a billion dollars on the balance sheet, send it public, and then do a deal with a company that wants to go public where they do uh, what's called a reverse merger into the SPAC. What that means is that the companies have a different path than using a Goldman Sachs or whomever in, in New York to take their company public and the fee is less. It's usually about 3% if you do a SPAC. So it's more founder friendly if you've built a company, especially in the tech world, which is why the SPAC's been heavy in the tech ecosystem and it's a better deal for the business. Uh, where is the trade-off? Well, the trade-off happens essentially where you're spreading the risk. Uh, Goldman takes all the risk when you're sending a company public. Uh, really, not Goldman, but the people who put their money with Goldman. Mm -hmm. uh, now you're spreading that risk a little bit more publicly because there's individual investors that are buying the stock of the SPACs when they go public and uh, trying to make a killing on them. So I think the kind of focal point of the conversation is is this a good thing or a bad thing? And I'll just kind of share up front. You know, my view is that this is a totally positive thing and a great way to make money if you know how to, you know, put together a SPAC and you have the network and relationships that people actually want to work with you to go public. I think it's a great way to leverage that and make a killing financially. Um, I think if you're a regular investor, you should be careful. I mean, there's a lot of people trading SPACs trying to make a ton of money and it's, uh, I think, anytime you're going into the stock market, attempting to do more than preserve your wealth or, you know, achieve small to moderate annual gains, I think you're in for a bad time typically. Yeah. I mean, there are successful SPACs, there are unsuccessful SPACs. If you look at the data over, over time, the, you are more likely to get a greater return as an investor um, through an IPO than you are a SPAC. Um, specifically also because IPOs go through more stringent regulation before they come to term. And then also SPACs put a lot of power into the sponsor and an outsized return to the sponsor, which also the only thing that I, I, I agree with you, I think anything that disrupts kind of the way things have always been done is good because it keeps what's always been done in check. SPACs have been around for a long time but they've recently gained popularity. But the concern is with anything, we've all seen the, seen all the movies, <laughs> Wall Street and, uh, and the Wolf of Wall Street. Um, anytime there is an opportunity to make a lot of money um, in a short amount of time, um, there are dangers. Um, and the danger here is sponsors have to take the money that they allocate um, into their SPAC and this, they have all the power to decide on what company they are going to invest in. And they have to make that decision within two years. Um, so that puts a lot of pressure on them. And then also the sponsor has access to 20% of the, the company. And we saw recently um, a lot of noise last week um, with Chamath uh, selling all of his private shares of Virgin Galactic Um which again creates a challenge because it's like people are investing not in a company, but they are investing in the individual that is sponsoring and their belief in that individual. So if that individual then cashes out and leaves everyone else holding the bag, 
that is a, a is something that an area of the SPAC model that I think as regulation happens, as people start to understand it more, hopefully will be closed. But as you said, Partha, this is a very unique vehicle, um, specifically in the tech industry for new technology to go public sooner. Now, with that said, I have a question for you. What is this kind of desire I feel like that's in the marketplace now to go public so quickly? Oh, it's no. just it's easier to raise money. So essentially, yeah. if if you're trying to you know take a company from you know several hundred million in revenue to billions in revenue, and you can go public via SPAC, you're able to, especially if you go with Chamath, right? Like a like a SoFi or somebody like that. Yeah, your stock price is going to shoot up. You're going to be able to sell a bunch of the shares that the company is holding that get created when you're going public. You're going to get a ton of cash in the bank account to be able to do the things you want to do. And you don't have to deal with a VC. You don't have to deal with a private equity investor who's going to try to put their will onto your company. So um, it's the best way to capitalize a business when you're that large. There's just no other way about it. And the SPAC takes power away from traditional finance and Wall Street. So that's why it's gotten so popular in the tech markets. Mm -hmm. And and why, do you, why is that such a... Um such a burden to have the VC world and finance world control it versus, you know, because the risk is that they have, you give them a, a lot of power over your company, right? But the same right. is done in a SPAC in terms of giving the sponsor one person um, a great degree of power. Not exactly. So okay. uh, Chamath wouldn't have any say-so on day-to-day -day operations of a business. He's really associating by name and facilitating via vehicle for that company to go public. So it's really more of a founder-friendly move if you think about you know where the, where the uh, incentives lie. Whereas if you were to go through any sort of major, if you were to raise money from any sort of private capital, like uh, the couple billion that we, we work raised from uh, SoftBank, there's a lot of strings tied to that money. If XYZ doesn't happen, then SoftBank steps in as their company. And we saw that happen, you know, with WeWork. Uh, obviously, it was mismanaged and it was the right thing to do. Yeah. But, and then they uh, reintroduced themselves as a, as a SPAC after being a failed, essentially a failed company, which to right. me rings alarm bells, right? So Here's the SPAC move is, is to raise money, exactly, because yeah. SoftBank didn't want to foot the bill themselves. They wanted to get it out of their hands. They wanted to raise some money in the public markets, which is, you know, SoftBank's probably writing the biggest checks in the world right now. So there were no other options for them at the size of company they were at. Yeah. So that's the danger, right? Is, is the, what the, where the power lies is they get to determine what company, they only have two years to decide on what company to invest in, um, which is usually a lot of money. These are, this is a, a large scale amount of money. That's, Plus, that's I think there's some weird rules. So if you invest in this back, I don't think you're allowed to know what company they're putting the they're taking public. So because of insider trading laws, I believe, because yeah. otherwise you would. Um, I'm not sure exactly how it ties in, but there is there are some weird privacy rules around SPACs in terms of who's allowed to know what. So you're right; it does put a lot of power into the hands of the main sponsor of the SPAC, which is why most people who do well in SPACs turn out to be multi multi billionaires. Because yeah. it you you really do make that kind of money, but you can't get to that position in society unless you're tremendously respected for all of the work you've done in, up until that point. And if you screw up once, it does burn your reputation for life. And so that's kind of the the toss up. And I think it also signals a shift in terms of how we value businesses. Because if you think about a business that say Chamath takes public, it's tremendously valued to your point because he's involved. But if he steps down like Virgin Galactic, the stock tumbles because he's no longer involved the same way Tesla stock would tumble if Elon Musk decided he wanted to step back, right? So it's, it's a calculated risk that you have to be aware of if you're the investor that when you're getting involved in a company that's gone public through a SPAC, that the reputation of the person who runs that SPAC, if they are very public facing, is probably a greater indicator of the stock's value than the performance of the business. And that's that's that that underlies the point that I was about to make. And that is why you see Chamath on every media outlet because he understands that generating hype generates value. Yeah. But the problem with that, um, and if you look at the track record, there are a lot of problems that he's left in his wake with personal with um with social capital 
um, and he keeps releasing new specs. And so it becomes a concern of how much diligence is this guy actually doing, or is he just understand, has he just figured out the value proposition for himself in a way to make a lot of money for himself without much, and this is all, this is a problem that I'm not pointing him out individually, but this is the problem that's existed for decades on Wall Street. He's not the first to do it, but how much, how much is he actually driven or incentivized or how much skin in the game does he actually have when he's doing 12, 13 SPAC offerings, right? Because what you're buying into is his expertise, but it seems like, you know, finding 12, 13 successful companies um, and introducing them all via SPAC seems to be a pretty sizable challenge. Yeah, I would I would actually flip the perspective the other way. I would say that uh, if you're Chamath, if you're anybody doing SPACs, the perspective is, hey, there's a lot of great companies in this world that could dramatically change the way that we live and work. And it's companies like Virgin Galactic that you know probably won't raise that money private. It's companies like SoFi that need that kick to get get to the next level or whatever the case may be. Companies who are at that stage that it's time for the public to decide if those companies reflect the values that we want society to go towards. I mean, that's really what the public markets are. It's how we value society, what businesses should exist and should not exist because we fund them collectively. And so I like what SPACs do purely from the premise of it makes it more of a meritocracy for companies to get into the limelight that are typically disruptors. That's typically the type of company that Mm -hmm. will go public via SPAC. So it's usually somebody who's going to have a harder time going public via Goldman or via any of the traditional investment banks. And I like that as a path because it brings more technology to the forefront and it lets the general public vote. But the risk, to your point, is that you know the general public, if they're going in with the intent of making money in the market, are probably going to get messed up at some point along the way. And yeah. that's you know that's the nuance of how do you treat the market and what are you looking at it as and what are your expectations in terms of return? Because if you're trying to double your money in a year by only investing your specs, you're almost surely going to lose. But if you're trying to set up a, a decent portfolio with small amounts allocated here and there to specs, then I yeah. think that's a great way to play the game. Yeah, I mean, there are examples. DraftKings is a great example of a successful SPAC. Um, but on the other side, you have uh, Nikola, and you saw the issues that they had with their chairman and CEO. It's like who is one of the things when you're 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 an individual investor investing in companies, you are hoping that things are being watched over and regulated carefully and correctly. And I think there is a gap that still needs to be bridged in terms of, I agree with you in terms of them being a great vehicle for new technology. But with that said, um, as a public instrument that is being traded, I feel like individual investors are not being properly educated on the risks that are involved. And therefore, they're looking at these SPACs as they come on board as the same thing as having the same security as any any other IPO. And the data has shown that that's not true uh, so far. Um, in the sense that once they hit public markets, that means the public can consume them. What I, I like about private equity, you're talking about individuals or corporations with large sums of money who are spreading out risk. When you put them in the public markets, oftentimes you're talking about people with much lower uh, risk thresholds, and that's the danger to me um, with SPACs, but that's why you move cautiously and you educate yourself Uh, on how you invest and what risk tolerance you are willing to take. Yep, exactly that. And, and, you know, just to add to that point, if you're not in a place to be making huge bets, don't make huge bets. You know, the the public markets are very much investor beware. Like the expectation that the government is taking a look at everything just isn't true because we see so many failures every single day. So I think as an investor, it's super important to set reasonable expectations for yourself. The reality is, if you're born in a lower socioeconomic class, for you to get to top 1% is going to be a challenge, but it's a challenge that's surmountable in your lifetime. Are you going to be a hundred billionaire? Probably not. You know, yeah. The odds are very, very much against you. I'm not saying you can't, but I'm saying that the level of expectation you set for yourself with your money in the market should be much, much more tempered than I want to be a billionaire because you don't, be a bi- you don't become a billionaire 
by winning the market in the short term. You do what Warren Buffett did and you build it up over many, many years. I think I read a stat recently. He was he was in his 70s when he crossed billionaire status. And now 60s, he's won. Yeah. 60s, yeah. Yep. That's amazing. I mean, he spent 45, 50 years because he started in his teens, 50 years trading before. And sticking, sticking to a set of values and principles. And a conservative set of values and principles. Yep which is yep. what has brought him the success he has today. And I think that's an important reminder for anybody. If you're trying to make short-term money in the market, you're almost guaranteed to lose. And that's just really, really important to remember. Yeah, it is important. And that's also what drives a lot of the, the, the negativity and negative stories that we hear is this desire for people to get rich quickly, right? Um, you're not even... I, I want to I want to kind of switch gears because I li- always like to use you as an example, specifically in, in in conversations like this because you are eight years now in development of your company, right? That is not a overnight get rich quick scheme. But if tomorrow you go public, Lasso goes public through a vehicle like a SPAC, right? You will become in other people's eyes an overnight success story and. That is not true. The issue that I have is not with stories like yours, but in stories like with people who follow a trend, see a trend happening in society, create a company around that trend, don't think through the process of creating an actual business, and then go public because they have a relationship with a billionaire through a SPAC, and you see what happened with a company like Nikola. Right. Yeah. And that is that is the cautionary tale. And I would ask you this. I know this is very early. You can't disclose anything um, in terms of even your thoughts about when or if you go public, how you would do so. Yeah, I mean, I would I would almost 100 percent use a SPAC because I, I would rather just give a F you to the system. Yeah. Um, so that's more my personality. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if I'm running a company that is on the verge of going public, then um, I'm, I'm sure that my perspective will be altered pretty drastically from where it is now. Yep. Yep. Well, yeah. That's a good bow on that, on that topic. Yeah. So moving forward, uh, we saw this uh, interview with Oprah yesterday with uh, Harry and, uh, is it Harry? Harry and Megan. <laughs> that shows you how, how tuned in we are. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I don't even think we need to spend a lot of time on this, but people people really care about the British monarchy. I saw a video of Piers Morgan like upset as hell about this interview. Like they defaced everything the Queen has built. I was like, dude, do you mean everything that every other country built that your people stole? You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah, there's this disturbing disconnect, and I've yeah. I've gotten into conversations. Because it, it does bother me a little bit. If you look at, you know, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago that the British stole about $47 trillion from India, $47 trillion. And not only that, disrupted the entire country. And Britain has this weird sense that they actually helped the world through what they did um, in colonialism, <laughs> in the <laughs> colonial era. And that is the opposite of the truth. They never acknowledge any fault. And I think that even the continued support and existence of this monarchy is a slap in the face to so many cultures and so many countries. So when this story popped up, I'm like, now you care? Because this Hollywood millionaire dealt with a little, a few people in the monarchy treating her bad. Like, first of all, it's not a surprise. I mean, if you know the history, you know what this thing is. It is a culture of of terrible and horrible things. And Britain's a pretty racist place, dude. Yeah, it is. It continues to be a very especially racist. against dark skinned people. Yes. It's really racist. Against against black people, against Indian people, against any Muslim people. Muslim people, anybody who is a minority, this is a horrible place. And so it's great that this story is making people wake up to it, but it's it's really sad that there's this cognitive dissonance with this belief and love of this childhood fairy tale of kingdoms and princes and princesses with the reality of what that actually is and the real history of what those things were. 
it continues to disturb me. And every time one of these stories come up, I'm like, what the fuck do we care for? Let's ignore these people. Let's take away their funding and let them burn in hell like they deserve to. <laughs> Man, on that note, <laughs> uh, let's put a bow on the British monarchy. Let's yeah. send them off to sea. Uh, the next, uh, <laughs> next thing to talk about, uh, Dak Prescott, highest paid QB with one playoff win. That sounds like one of those... Um, Sports Center stats. Yeah. You know, first player to put up 10 points in the first quarter of his third game of his career. Yeah. I mean, look, the questions abound on whether or not he deserves this money. But the market, this is a good conversation about the market dictating value. Um, and the market for quarterbacks in the NFL is outrageous. We've seen many instances this past year of this need for the NFL when a quarterback. Uh, you have a starting quarterback to pay them a exorbitant amount of money. Jared Goff and Carson Wentz are two examples of how this situation doesn't always pan out or play out well. Um, it's, it comes down to does Dak Prescott deserve the same amount of money as Russell Wilson, as Aaron Rodgers, Patrick Mahomes, Tom Brady, who have Super Bowl wins on their resumes and have won multiple playoff games versus a guy who has only won one and has benefited significantly from having a top three running game, a top three offensive line, and in the top in the, before this year, a top four scoring defense. Is he the reason that they're they're winning, or is he just a a, a byproduct of everything else that they've built? That's a reasonable question to ask, and something I think. Hopefully, we'll learn about the QB market because it is debilitating teams. I don't think the Dallas Cowboys are going to win a Super Bowl by paying Dak Prescott $40 million and they have holes in so many other areas. That's just my, I just don't think that he belongs in that category. All power to him for taking advantage of the market and, and getting paid. But whether or not it's a, it's a good value proposition for the NFL remains to be seen. Yep. 100%. You know, I think I think that's so interesting to think about the quarterback in general because it it in my opinion is an extremely valuable position, but yeah. only when there's a great leader in that position, right? And yep. you know, I don't I don't know much about Dak. I don't know much about his reputation, but I could definitely understand why Mahomes deserves the kind of money, you know, they're giving him cuz he's a a once in a generation player. So it's interesting, and I think, uh, yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see how salaries kind of even out over the next several years. But QB has always been kind of the the hot seat, you know. Yeah, I mean, and the value proposition for the Cowboys is obvious. They balance winning with branding, right? And Dax is the most popular player on that team currently. He's the highest jersey seller. The fans and the community love him. Um, so that also influences your decision making if you when when you are a team like the Cowboys more so than just the bottom line winning or losing if Dak Prescott was the quarterback of the New England Patriots Bill Belichick would tell him to go get his 40 million dollars elsewhere yeah. and do the Cowboys actually care about winning is maybe the bigger conversation here or are they doing fine because they have such a crazy fan base i think they care about being entertaining yeah you know and if you I look think at that's how a good they, way to put it they 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 want their fans to be entertained. And if you look at how they've distributed their salaries, Amari Cooper has a $90 million contract. Ezekiel Elliott has a $90 million contract. And now Dak Prescott has a $160 million contract. Their defense is in, in, in <laughs> is shattered. And their offensive line, which was a, a key to their success, is also shattered. So we'll see how this all plays out. But if you are getting paid that type of money, you are expected to get into the playoffs and compete for a Super Bowl. Yep. So, you know, onwards from sports, uh, we've got music news. We've got some really good music news today. Uh, yes. Let's start with the business side of it, and then we can go into the creative side because we, yes. we definitely got to talk about my boy Drake. But let's start with Jay-Z sold, uh, was it $300 million stake? in title yes majority stake for 300 million good for him man good for him good for him 
And I think it's also an interesting play. Like it's, it's, we can look at the Jay-Z side of it and say, okay, here's a brilliant entrepreneur. Um, But the other side of this is the square side of it. They see a real value here. Um, You know, Jack Dorsey is the CEO of both Square and Twitter. I'm fascinated to see how they use this partnership to distribute music through their platforms, right? Um, There was some conversation, interesting conversation about how Square has been in this crypto space and how they are now going to use the intellectual property that they've gained through Tidal and that streaming platform to also use that in, in, in the world of NFTs and music. There's a lot of cool things that potentially could happen here and, uh, and whether or not it's successful, I do admire the way that, um, that Jack Dorsey thinks and looks at the world. Um, and it's going to be fascinating to see how this deal plays out. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, moving it forward so uh yeah i'm just gonna jump into it drake is so good man unbelievable man unbelievable <laughs> you know it's funny i li- I, j- I just listened to lemon pepper to get Me myself too. get myself back in the mood for the podcast right before we got Me on. too. yeah and the guy can't miss yeah literally literally shoots 100 percent. i don't think- i've never seen this level of excellence in music before and and his ability to create music to that reaches somebody who's 50 and reaches someone who's 16 is amazing. And I feel like he is the blueprint. If you really want to be a great artist or a musician, study Drake. Look at how he approaches this business. He's not pressed by social media. He's not he's not he's not thirsty for to constantly feed the hype beast. He moves at his own pace. He sits back, studies culture, studies music, studies other musicians, and then crafts something every single time that takes everything that he's learned and packages it in a way that we all can relate to. It's not accidental. It's science. What he does is actually science. And that's the level. If you want to be great and, at music or anything else, that's the level of detail and care that you have to take in music. And we've seen like, they're like, how has he stayed relevant so long? And hip hop specifically, artist has one great album, right? That they tell their story and that's it. There's once their story gets old, second, third album, people get sick of them. Yeah. Drake knows how to reinvent himself and his music is about himself but it's also about what everybody he understands what people in culture care about and what moves them emotionally. And it's just, I can't, if you don't, if you hate on Drake, you're just a hater, right? Yeah. Like that's how I feel. I can't run. I, I just, what is it now? Almost. It's uh, like hating on LeBron. I mean, when you see greatness for this long, you have to love it. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's amazing, man. And And also the other thing that he does and, he is he knows how to work with other artists really well too yeah yeah a hundred percent dude i mean plus you put him and rick ross on a track it's gonna be fire lemon pepper freestyle was probably the most wisdom i've heard in one place in in years since do not disturb came out yeah i mean and 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 you know what's funny is lemon pepper is overshadowing what's next yeah which is the hit yeah Yeah. you know and it's it just goes to show you that this guy is, he's thinking, and it wasn't accidental, the delay in his album. He thinks through things business-wise and oh, yeah. creatively. It wasn't accidental that he delayed Certified Lover Boy, and then this was all planned. The release of this was planned. The music was ready. This is all, all just just watch him work yeah. and and follow his blueprint. And if you're a good artist, and you to exercise that type of care into your music, your marketing, your branding, and all elements of who you are, you will win. I think we'll get the album in uh, June, Certified Lover Boy. I think he's going to tour it. Yeah, I think yeah. there's a tour coming coming with that. Yeah. Wild, man. That What's Next song was just... That's my favorite record on there. 
it took everything that's good about Playboy Cardi and made it better. Yeah. And not only that, it's like, you know, you and I talk a lot about the place that we're at right now. Right. And it's like a lot of things that move other people and make other people content, like the flash and, and things like that. Those don't, those things don't necessarily move us the same way. Right. And that song really kind of took that thought process that, that we have in our head and put it on a record where I could feel it. You know what I mean? Um, you know, the degree of truth, by the way, that that speaks to is is pretty unbelievable. Yes. Yes. Man. I, I also feel, dude, like if if we relate like to that, to Lemon Pepper Freestyle, I think I, I think he connects deeper than just people who are ambitious or entrepreneurial no. or who are taking the path. But it's like every song that he's been reflective his whole career has been like a trail that I've followed, I feel like, from a mindset standpoint where it's like, okay, the next level of success should feel like this song feels. And you listen to the lyrics and it's like, okay, what's that energy? What's that attitude? You find that within yourself, boom, you've gotten to that threshold. Then it's it's like he leaves you breadcrumbs to help you like be your best self. Yeah, he definitely does. Specifically, you know, and and like you said, I, I don't know if we relate to it more because of who we are and what we want to be. Um, But I think you're right. Even if there are people who literally also just enjoy his music for the entertainment value, they're not listening deeply to the lyrics and what he's saying. You can just enjoy the music, whether you're a casual listener or whether you are a lyrical based listener. And that's why he is the best artist out right now. There are some artists who can satisfy one, but not the other. He satisfies both. Oh yeah. hundred percent, man. And, uh, damn, there's just some lines in lemon pepper freestyle, man. Yeah. Just hit you. Yeah. There's a different line that hits me every time I listen to it. It's crazy. crazy. What the, about the trucks where he says one truck in, in front of me, one behind me to follow. Yeah. Just like the visual that that creates of you riding in a suburban with one in front, one behind, your whole crew rolling up somewhere with that yeah. level of protection just implies a certain level of status that I just yeah. like, I've never heard people talk like that about where they're at. Yeah. Yeah. It's so implicit. I think that's what's so impressive about well, it. What, what happens is a lot of people who attain a certain level of success, they lose perspective. And what Drake has maintained is perspective. He's able to articulate and have the perspective of each phase of his life yeah. to be able to then articulate it to us which is a special gift. It's what a great writer has, what a great artist has that makes them Picasso, that makes them Michael Jackson, that makes them Drake, right? Yeah. Um, and, and that's what's very unique about him is that although he has reached this level of success, he has not lost perspective of what it means. That's family. a great point. And I think something he does... Uh, well in handling that success is he stays very grounded in terms of his sense of self where he's able to describe those things almost like he's us but having gone through that where he's like you know this is the noise i deal with on a day-to-day basis yep yep and also he's able to drown out the noise like he's really focused on being the greatest artist of all time yeah and he's not running a race against anyone else um he's running his own race and he's running it like Usain Bolt. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> well, on that note, man, we should probably stop talking about Yeah, uh, before, they, before people start saying, okay, do these guys have man crushes? On yeah, <laughs> for sure. For sure. Uh, definitely. Now, we'll take a short break. Uh, you guys can listen to a little lasso ad, and we will be back shortly to talk about recognition and attention, all this clout versus true fulfillment maybe something that Drake has started to figure out in his life. Let's get to it. Show the Pilot Boy some love by getting some of our exclusive merch at shop.pilotboys.com. You're listening to the Pilot Boys Podcast. Hey guys, this is Partha. You might know me as a Pilot Boy, but I'm also the CEO of Lasso. Lasso is a high-performance lifestyle brand that makes a Lasso Sock 2.0, the most functional sock ever to help you stay moving on any adventure you choose. 
Lasso uses patented compression technology with scientifically proven ankle stability to support key ligaments and tendons as well as moisture wicking materials and built-in strike padding. So every single step is stable, soft, and cool. Lasso socks are also used to treat foot and ankle conditions like plantar fasciitis, Achilles pain, ankle soreness, circulation issues, and more. Check them out at lassogear.com or at lassogear on social media. Undo Media is proud to be the production partner for the Pilot Boys. Storytelling is what they do. From video production, podcasting, and consulting, Undo Media's focus is on telling your story. Find out why four Emmys and hundreds of clients will back up why you should contact Undo Media for your next project. Look them up at undomedia.com. And we're back. Hope you guys enjoyed those ads, and hopefully uh, you guys are buying some lasso gear and some some Pilot Boys gear uh, during the break. Yes. Help keep us going. Yes, and sign up for that Patreon too, please. Yes, yes. Keep let's keep building the content. All right, Martha. Let's get in. This is a you topic. This is one. I saw it on TikTok. So last time it was a me topic. So this time it's a you topic. Let's get Uh, to it. Did you see the TikTok I posted yesterday? Is that is that what you're talking about? Yeah. 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 This is a good topic. So I think that there's this clear difference between happiness, like personal fulfillment, and like what we consider as professional success and it's something that i've been battling with a lot because you know being in la obviously having a lot of success come my way in the last several years of of my life and also having dealt with success from an attention standpoint before i had it financially and like kind of mentally um i've seen a lot of sides of the spectrum and i want to talk about how when you focus on things like clout, essentially other people's outside markers on you, that can be very, very challenging if that's what you value. And there's this like amazing uh, podcast by Naval Ravikant, who everybody should look him up. He has a three-hour podcast on Spotify. And essentially, he just talks through all of his beliefs. But he does this cool thing where he separates what he calls wealth uh, from social status and says you should play the wealth game, not the social stat- social status game. The reason why is because social status is a limited amount that you can get. So you're competing against other people to be cool. So yep. all of it is built on are you cooler than someone else? That is an inherently limiting mindset because you never ask the question, you know, what do I want to do? What makes me happy? What is my path? And when you go after things like fulfillment and success, you often have to turn away from recognition and attention to build the right habits to get you to the goals that actually make you happy. Yes. What I've learned, you know, going through the journey is that that recognition and attention from the beginning of the road that you crave will only come to you when you completely stop desiring it and solely focus on your own personal fulfillment and success. But you still, there's a lot of people who have that personal fulfillment who don't share, you know, how they got there with the rest of the world. Those people kind of stay in a silo. That's one way to live is to kind of keep a private, low key life where, you know, you don't really talk to people. But ultimately, when you're successful, people are going to want to talk to you and you're going to get some level of recognition and attention, whether it's minimal or whether it's Drake level. And it's important to understand both and understand that how to handle amounts of recognition and attention coming your way versus how to handle money and success coming your way. Because those both require, in my opinion, totally different manners of thinking and receiving and processing information. Yeah. You, you, um, it's hard to follow that up, Partha. You did a great <laughs> job there summarizing, summarizing the, the, the subject. And I think the trouble comes into play in society and, and you're hundred percent right. And you actually sent me that podcast. I haven't gotten through all three hours yet. I'm doing it in segments as I get time, but it has been very enlightening in terms of how he packages everything together and definitely something that I think everyone should listen to. But I think the trouble that, that we all run into and we talk about this all the time is the system, right? the system and how it's structured for people to receive feedback from a very young age, from when you're in school, we have, we have 
on our societies. We have, um, you know, awards for child, child sports. Everything is kind of built up for people, especially people who highly excel. And both of us know people like this. Um, and at times we've, we've had those for ourselves as well, where you highly excel and you continue to get rewarded and get prizes for those things that you excel at, but you're never really thinking about the value. You're only thinking about the reward and being the best, but you're never asking yourself the question, do I really even care about this? Yeah. And oftentimes I find from people who kind of have been in that, who are number one at everything, when they get to adulthood and the real world hits them in the face and people aren't constantly telling them how great they are, or there's not that structure in place, they either continually seek new rewards for their whole life and they need that, or they fall off and they don't know how to function when that system is no longer in place. Um, And that's a reality that I think we as a society have to start thinking about more about how do we structure our education system and how do we structure our all of our systems in a way that it's not just about recognition and rewards, but it is about the value and how do we do that? That is a multi-billion dollar question that I think society has to grapple with. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point. And you know, what's, what's so interesting V is that I think there's a, there's a perspective that you've shown here, which is like the responsibility to modify or improve society in some way or to solve problems on behalf of society. And uh, I think it illustrates a little bit of difference in our thinking because I tend to take a more personal approach, which is that society is this, I'm over here, what can I do to set things up in my favor due to the circumstances of society? And I think it's, it's interesting because I feel the difference in philosophy is that your belief is that impact can be made on society. Mm. My belief is it cannot be made on society. <laughs> I feel that the only impact that can be made is through demonstration. And so it's, it just shows the difference in how you and I go about solving problems, which I think is interesting to note. Um, but from the standpoint of you know, how an individual, how like one of our listeners can handle recognition or success, or let's say they're struggling with both, how do you do you have any habits or ways that you you learn to differentiate what is like the right feeling of success versus like the fake feeling of success like what helped you learn the nuance there i think it comes down to self and self awareness right like once i started to ask myself the questions of very early on i asked myself the questions of what do I value? It's a very confusing, you know, being a first generation American is a very confusing thing to be because the value systems conflict with each other. And I was really going through kind of like a, a, a tug of war between me being the person who was authentically myself and the person that the cultures that I was in expected me to be. Um, and there were pulls from both sides, right? And so that kind of process led me to say, wait a second, wait a second. And it's funny, you you pointed out the difference in our thinking, but I think from a personal standpoint, I don't think we approach things much differently from this right. perspective, right? Right, Which totally agree. Yeah. That we are not as moved by what the outside world thinks about us. We think internally about how do we improve, how do we become a better version of ourselves, and how do we become the person that we actually want to be and that we hope to be, right, our complete selves. Um, And I think that that's, interestingly enough, spiritually, that's what our culture encourages us to do, right? right? To find our purpose in this world. Each of us has a purpose. And, and that's where reincarnation comes in is that you will continue to be reborn until you fulfill your purpose in this, in this life and in this world. So that really helped me is, is un- actually really understanding the spirituality of our culture versus 
the American version of our culture, which encourages competition, being a doctor, being highly successful, getting straight A's, being the best tennis player, being like all of those things. To me, I disassociated from from that and said, what does V want? What does V care about? And I think you've done the same thing. That's why you were able to take the step of dropping out of college, despite knowing how culturally our society views something like that. Right. A hundred percent. I think, you know, to your point, I've also leaned a lot on spirituality. It's helped find some grounding in terms of who I am outside of the context of society and where I fit into society. And I think that that's an important moment in anyone's life. Um, for those who are listening who might not know this about me, I, uh, I was originally selling crutches and, uh, mm-hmm. it was the first product I made. And, uh, you know, at, right after I dropped out of school, I got invited to the white house to meet president Obama on some totally like, you know, out of the blue, I applied on the White House website for this thing. And it it was just like some event. And it turned into a meeting with the president because they looked me up. They thought I would be a good face for the story that they were trying to tell, whatever. Um, you know, rarely, rarely will I get this open about this, but I think it's important. Even how you're telling the story says a lot. Go ahead. Keep going. Yeah. I mean, like rarely will I present it in this way. Like usually I present it in a way that makes me look good. But this yeah. is this is the honest truth. Um, the experience, you know, I showed up, I didn't know what was going to happen. They took me back to this area and I was just like, this kind of whack. I'm not anywhere near the rest of the event. And then I realized later it was because I was meeting the president, which was sick and yeah. honestly so inspiring and just like earth changing for me. It shifted the paradigm of what was possible within the context of what I believed in my life. But it also mess me up because I didn't have financial success at this point. I was still very early in my journey. And so I was struggling financially. And at the same time, everywhere I went, everyone assumed I was a millionaire. Everyone would treat me like I was super successful. And uh, every party I would go to, I was still going to college parties. I was still 22. I would go to college parties and uh, you know, I'd walk into a room. I still remember this. I walk into a room and everyone gets quiet, turns, sees me, starts whispering. And it's just like, man, like that, that shit sucks. Like that's, that's the shitty part of fame. And that's the shitty part of like attention is that it causes people to look at you differently. And so one thing I had to learn is somebody who did not like being in the spotlight their whole childhood. I was, I grew up a very shy kid. I had to learn how to thrive in that spotlight. And, uh, at first I was overwhelmed by what I would consider like ego related thoughts which is like how can i flex on people how can i like show them i am successful and like i had this like crazy chip on my shoulder because internally i just didn't feel successful and it took several years of continuous like failures and trying and trying and trying and trying and even through the initial building of lasso as i became friends with a lot of celebrities and athletes and kind of got into some pretty exclusive circles from an entrepreneurship perspective i um still didn't really feel like I deserved to be there. Like at all times I felt this level of like, um, you know, like why me? It's like Drake has this line in Lemon Pepper Freestyle. I think he says all survivors have survivor's guilt, right? Yeah. That's kind of what I had was like, you know, like I'm just the same as all these people. Like you remember in college, we were all exactly the freaking same. Now I'm on this pedestal within the context of society that doesn't feel earned. And it took a long time before my brain could process the difference between how you manipulate how society views you versus who you actually are and separating those identities. And I think it's something that like somebody like a Kobe learned when he created the Black Mamba identity for himself, which is just yeah. creating a headspace you can step into when you have to be public facing versus the version of yourself you are with everybody else. And uh, yeah, yeah. Go, go ahead. No, no. I think that that was, that was profound. And I think... This is where you and I relate very deeply in the sense that people embrace us. Um, and sometimes we ask ourselves a question, like you said, it's, it's, it's almost like a guilt, right? Like when someone asks me, like, how do you, how do you do the things that you do? How do you move the way that you move? I don't have a detailed answer for them. I can't, I don't have the depth to say, Hey, do this, this, and this, it's 
just a matter of for a long time I, I carried guilt with that. It's like, yes, I'm benefiting and and a lot of things that people people pay a lot for or pay a heavy price for, I have not had to pay in certain instances. But this what changed for me is when I stopped questioning those things because I realized that the reason that I was feeling guilty about things is because of the outside world. Yeah. Because it, it did, it actually disrupted me from just flowing through life and being me because while I was just being myself, I had to deal with the questions, whether it's family, whether it's friends, whether it's the outside world about what you're doing with your life and the questions around that. Right. And that's also what recognition creates this problem in society because everybody sees the handful of people that are recognized and they aspire to be recognized like those people versus creating their own value and creating yeah. their own identity and just being themselves. And that's really where the brand came from, right? Yep. It's like, be yourself, whoever you are, whatever your identity is, be comfortable in that identity. If you are a very gifted biochemist, embrace being a gifted biochemist. Don't necessarily think that you have to be Drake, for example, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and then also don't let other people dictate what you have to do once you do get money. There's this belief that, oh, you have to represent that you have money a certain way. And that draws, the, that moves the needle on social media. You and I know this. Yep. When, when, we, when we decide to flash a little bit, the attention goes up, right? And sometimes you, sometimes you do it on purpose. Sometimes you know yeah. what feeling it'll create in people. And so you do that's that. Separate, separate, like you said in your, that's why I said you, you did yeah. a great job, is really separating, using the, the Kobe example, really separating what moves your market and what you need to do to satisfy your market and to generate revenue from your identity and who you actually are to the people that care about you and the people's opinions who you actually care about. You have to separate those two things. And if you yeah. don't, you will constantly be in a struggle and, and, and go through identity crisis. Yeah. And it's not a healthy and happy way to be because you and I have both gone through very negative thoughts and in, in our journeys, right? Yeah, Where, 100%. 100%. I heard a piece of advice that was like, everything that's around you is real. Your close friends, your family, everything out there is the movie. Everything on social media is the movie. And, you know, it, it is productive to see it as a movie and to see yourself as a protagonist in that movie because then you have the power to maybe be a little bit more than you would be in any situation for the viewer, right? Yeah helping the people who want to see you see what they need to see to get, whether it's inspiration or enjoyment or whatever you represent to people to get that fix that they're looking for. But at the same time, you can never let your sense of identity transition into the role that you're playing. Your sense of identity has to remain separate. Yeah, it, it, it 100% does. And it's, it's easier said than done. Mm -hmm. And it's a process that, that everybody is, is going through. You know, I think, it takes a long time to master anything. You know, Gladwell says it takes 10,000 hours. You know, I think I've probably invested more than 10,000 hours in my identity and, and understanding myself and then the society and culture around me and how, what my place within that is, you know. And once you do get to that mastery, though, and, and you and I have talked about this, you start moving with a level of comfort um, that, what anyone else says or thinks about you doesn't matter anymore, right? It's like you're in a level of so much conscious about who you are that other people's opinions cannot disrupt anymore your thinking about yourself and your opinions and, and your thoughts and how you move. You still recognize that how you think and how you move may not be what works for someone else, but you accept that that's all right that it is your own race. It is not their race to run. Right. And you have to be okay with that. And that's where 
getting crapped by recognition, getting crapped by by these kind of measuring sticks of success gets you in trouble because you become entrapped by what other people think is the right way to be and the right way to think and the right way to succeed. And you and I both know people who are highly successful, who always competed to be the first and be at the top. And that becomes a never-ending race where they're hyper-successful, but they're still extremely insecure. Yeah. And that's not that's not the way that I think is a very healthy way to be, to achieve all of that and to remain insecure. I think a, a degree of insecurity is healthy to help you get to where you're trying to go, but you have to eventually master that insecurity. And that's when you you reach mastery. We, we won't all reach nirvana like Buddha did in this lifetime, but you can you can get to mastery and being okay with yourself, both both your strengths, your weaknesses, your flaws, all of that. Understand once you understand yourself, you can reach a place of mastery and calmness that is unique. Yeah. You know, and I think the takeaway here to to put the bow on it is that it's about looking inward. It's not about looking outward. Everything mm-hmm. around you is in that first bucket of recognition and attention. And those are all the false signals. But if you look inward toward your inner compass and say, you know, am I happy? Like what would make me happy? What would make me feel good about myself outside of the context of others? If the things that make you happy involve other people, then those are not things that make you happy. Those are things that make you feel validated. And yes. so what makes you feel happy? Is it making art? Is it taking walks? Is it working out? Whatever that thing is, spend more time doing that and you'll live a happier life. Yeah, you definitely will. Definitely will. Awesome. Good conversation, man. I think that was that was good. Yeah, and it looks like we are here at the end of our time uh, to all of our listeners. This has been another fun episode to record. Hope you enjoyed the uh, special episode last week with our friend Nafis. Uh, that was a blast for all of us to record. It's fun always talking to V when he's on vacay. Uh, to all of our listeners, always remember, be you. You as fly. Uh, boys out. Don't forget to stay moving. Pilot boys, we get on up. We go fly, boys, we get up. So cool,